Hey everyone, and welcome to episode number 40, the Cisco Tax Security Podcast, where our panel of experts discuss all things Cisco security, including configuration, troubleshooting, hot issues being seen by the Cisco Technical Assistance Center, and new features introduced into Cisco security products. So I'm your host, Jay Johnston. With me in the studio is Mr. Magnus Mortensen. How's it going, Magnus? It's going pretty good, Jay. I uh, just came back from a little stint of PTO at the end of holidays here, and I'm feeling great and refreshed. Feeling refreshed. And Mr. David White, how are you? Fantastic. How are you, Jay? I'm doing good. It's 2014. Uh, did everybody, uh, anybody got any cool New Year's resolutions they want to share with our listeners or uh, outlooks for the year 2014? Mm, I'm trying to think of something that would be security related. Um, change my passwords to not be password. Yeah. Mine password123. Oh, so, dude. That's much better than mine. Yeah, no, Cisco123. Cisco123. But, but then the you capital can four C. five. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Or Today. an exclamation mark. Th- this year it's going to be Cisco 2014. <laughs> That's really good. <laughs> yeah. that, that is a great improvement in security. There. It is. I mean, you at least know that it's going to change. That's true. Yeah. And you can so. guess what it's going to be tomorrow, you know, next year. Yeah. Year after. I'm already for. But, I'm planning for 2015. But nobody already. else knows. Yeah. Is the key. So if you're listening to this, please don't try to log in with my username and password. Yep. M A Morton. But if they listen to it in 2015, they won't know. It, they won't get it right. So. so then my password is Cisco 2013. That's right. <laughs> well, this episode, we are talking about ASA clustering. So ASA clustering has been out for a while. Um, we introduced it in version 9.0 for the 5585 platforms and the 5580. But uh, we didn't do an episode on it at that time when it was released because um, we were waiting for support for the 5580. Uh, X5 platforms. What do we call What do we call it? 5500-Xs. 5500-X series. Next, next gen, gen firewalls. ASA firewalls. Yeah. Okay. So we, wait, we wanted a way to do an episode because we figured that um, we would have uh, much more um, customer adoption of the feature once we started supporting it for the 5500-X next gen ASA series platform firewalls. So uh, that's what we're doing today. So we're going to break this episode up into two pieces. The first episode is going to be um, just all about clustering and how you can... Uh, who, who should deploy the feature, how you get it deployed successfully, and some tack, tips and tricks there. And then the second, ra- the second episode is going to be about um, troubleshooting and how TAC troubleshoots hot problems that we see with the clustering feature. So um, let's, let's go ahead and get this started. Uh, I'll start with you, Magnus. So give me an intro into clustering. This is a major change in how the ASA can process packets. So tell, tell me about what the clustering feature is. So the whole idea behind clustering, um, we looked at the product line of the ASA and we said, all right, how can we get faster performance? How can we get more throughput, more connections? How can we scale? Uh, And unfortunately, the answer would not have been limited to a single box. So we looked at how do we deploy more than one ASA in a fashion that we could distribute load, distribute resources, and achieve much higher throughput than what we were able to do with just a single box. And I think there's benefits to having multiple boxes as well because you don't have a single point of failure. I mean, customers were really demanding that they could leverage um, not just one or two ASAs passing traffic, but, you know, plus up to eight is what we support with clustering. And I think it's, you know, good to note, too, that this is a lot of times when we talk about clustering this is what customers kind of thought active active exactly. really was active when active failover active active, active, active failover yeah. years ago you hear the term active active and they thought oh both boxes would be active at the same time yes but there's a lot of caveats right I get twice the throughput that's right you gotta be uh, multi-context exactly. and only one context can be active on any unit at a time so this is really what i think most customers expect when they think about active active or when they think about utilizing all their ASAs that they've got to perform live, you know, traffic forwarding, right? So um, also we got to clarify that there's also VPN 
clustering, right, where you have load balancing between VPN devices. But this clustering that we're talking about today is just for uh, firewalled traffic, right? So having multiple ASAs working in unison together to scale the performance where all of them are actively forwarding packets, all of those units in a firewall cluster. So, so let's compare this to failover directly. So Magnus, tell us, you know, a pair, some firewalls that are in failover versus a group of firewalls that are in, in a cluster. How is that different? Well, we can start with the simplest failover config, which is going to be your active standby existence, where you have one active firewall passing all your traffic and one standby firewall just in case the active one goes down. And when you look at a cluster of firewalls, when we, you know, as opposed to an active standby, as opposed to sending only traffic to one of those firewalls, different load balancing algorithms external to your actual ASA cluster determine where traffic goes. So you might have some connections go to one of the firewalls in the cluster. You might have others go to any of the others that are part of that cluster. Upwards of, I think on the 5580s and 5585s, we support up to eight units. So you could have eight different ASAs with different load balancing on the uh, outside of those ASAs based on switches or routers that distribute and transmit traffic to units in that cluster. And I think that's a key point, too, is that, you know, as we talk about multiple of the same exact devices working together in unison to forward traffic through the ASAs, we need to distinguish that this isn't some, uh, th this isn't like some of the other load balancing mechanisms that customers might be familiar with, with other firewall products or with other networking devices, right? So we don't have all the traffic being sent to a multicast address. We don't have all the traffic being sent to a single IP, which then redistributes it out, right? We're not doing tricks with ARP to, like, right. spoof. We're, and, we're not yeah. using any of that. And In fact, the technology that is that was developed to enable ASA clustering is unique to Cisco. So as Magnus was just alluding to, if you've got eight units in the cluster, whatever traffic the unit receives is what it's going to process, right? So if you're using an ether channel across those eight units, the ether channel load balance algorithm determines which flow goes to which unit in that cluster. And by and large, which, whichever you know device receives it is the one that's going to process it the vast majority of times. And we'll get into that in, the, in a minute. But you know, it, it's just key to know that you know we're not using anything special such as multicast. We're not using a single IP to redistribute, right? So whatever traffic gets sent to the unit is what typically it's going to process. Yeah, and originally when we released the clustering feature, it was targeted at data center deployments. So that's why you saw support for the 5585 platforms um, coming in first. Uh, clustering's been out for a while, and we do recognize that there's a lot of customers that may want to run it on um, their 5500-X platform. So, uh, and that's why that support was added in version 914. That that maintenance release, uh, 914, added support for that feature. So... Um, so, Magnus, talk about what platforms this is supported on and which it is not supported on. Well, uh, as we've mentioned, we, we've been tossing the term uh, the 5500-X platform series as what we're talking about when we talk about clustering support. Uh, what that includes is your 5512s, 5515s, 5525s, 45s, 55s, as well as the 5585 and 5580 that were mentioned earlier. Uh, the older platforms, such as the 5510, 20, 40, 50, as well as the little desktop 5505, do not support clustering. Um, and to the best of my knowledge, there's no plan to extend it back to those platforms either. This is really something for the Dash X platforms, as well as the two higher-end 5580 and 85. 
Yeah, and, and part of that comes from the processing and also the memory requirements because um, we'll talk about this in uh, the second episode of the clustering series here, but um, you know we do have full redundancy of the connections being processed by the cluster unit. So if a connection, uh, cluster member A is processing a TCP connection, then he's definitely going to back it up to one or more ASAs in the cluster. So you're going to see, you know, obviously the total number of connections processed by these different boxes is going to increase because we do want that redundancy. And so for that, we have increased uh, hardware requirements, and that's why we're running it on these newer ASAs. So let's also spend a minute on why a customer would want to have this feature enabled or why they would want to design their network to have clustering. Yeah, I think the the simplest uh, answer is they have a requirement for firewalling in their data center. They have um, pretty high-speed links. They're pushing a lot of traffic, more maybe than uh, one ASA can process, and they want to distribute that load amongst multiple firewalls, but have all of those firewalls centrally managed in part of one sort of logical grouping of ASAs, which is a cluster. The way I like to think of clustering is very similar to just Ether channel in general. You get the additional benefit of uh, more bandwidth, as well as the redundancy that comes with the possibility of losing a member in an Ether channel. And the same thing somewhat applies to clustering. You get that increase in, in benefits from bandwidth and resources, and you also inherently get some redundancy built into that as well. I, th- I think that's a great analogy. Um, what we also have to be concerned with, uh, at least what our listeners have to be concerned with when they design these solutions, is, as we mentioned, that the X series, the 5512 through the 5555, currently only support two members in a cluster. So if you're clustering those to get additional throughput that's greater than a single unit can provide, should one of those units die, you'll have to you know know that the one unit that remains will be above capacity. Overloaded, right? essentially. Overloaded, yeah. essentially, right. So you have risk in there. Um, so when you're generally designed in a data center, when you're designing clusters, and again, we scale up to eight clusters on uh, cluster members on the other, the 5585s and 5580s, design it such that you're, you know, if you only really need three members in the cluster for your performance, you really should have four, right? Because if any one of them dies, you want the rest of it to be able to take overload without any impact to the network. I think they call that what, N plus one redundancy? That's right. Yep. So um, our listeners are probably starting to build a picture of what clustering on the ASA means. So let's talk about one of the first concepts to get through. You know, they're probably thinking, how do I manage this thing? Do I configure all of the members? Do I just configure one of them? Do I have to use CSM or PRSM to configure these? So, Magnus, walk us through the different unit roles that these uh, cluster unit members can take. Well, first off, we've been talking about uh, cluster members. Um, And if I have eight firewalls, for example, in my cluster, each one of them is a member of the cluster. But if we look back at failover, we have special designations and special roles that units play in failover. The same somewhat holds true for clustering. Uh, One of the key roles is, well, one of the key designations of role is master versus slave. Uh, In a cluster, you're only going to have one ASA that is master at any given time. Okay, that is the ASA that you would do all of your configuration changes on. That's the ASA that you manage. The rest of the units that are part of that ASA cluster are what we designate as the slaves in that cluster. Now, if I've got, again, an eight-unit cluster, I have one master and seven slaves that are part of that cluster. If one of them, for example, if the master unit for ex- um, goes down for whatever reason, power fails, fan tray fails, whatever, 
you end up with the role of master being transferred over to another unit within that cluster. So one of the slave units would then be promoted to a master role, and that would be you, where you would manage. And unlike uh, the failover feature on the ASA, where you can, it gives you a warning not to, but you can go in and modify the configuration manually of the standby unit. Um, if you go into a slave unit on in a cluster, and you, you can get into config mode, um, but then if you actually try to change uh, most of the config, it'll say cha error changing configuration is not allowed on slave units. So we block you from making changes on the slave. All the configuration changes um, should be made from the master, but that doesn't stop you from logging in or connecting directly to a slave unit to gather uh, statistics or troubleshoot or run packet captures or whatever you need to do. So that's the master role versus the slave roles. Now let's talk about specific features uh, in clustering. So there are some features that aren't supported and um, you know some of the features are uh, accelerated for the cluster. So Dave, talk about how that works. Sure. So when you have the units in a cluster, we talked about having a master unit. Um, as you know, the ASA supports a ton of different features. And each of these features had to be designed to be able to be offloaded, right, to the different slave members of the cluster. That's what's known as distributed feature processing. Um, so as a traffic flow comes to one of these slave members, which is active, uh, that feature is distributed and it can process that traffic. Now, not all features of the ASA um, support this distributed mode of processing the traffic. So we have some notable features uh, which can only be processed by the master unit. And specifically, the main features are around uh, VPN, right? So land-to-land -land VPN and remote access VPN can only be processed by the master or the centralized um, unit. Uh, additionally, some of our inspections can only be processed by the, the master unit as well. Um, so SMTP and ESMTP, along with PPTP inspection, uh, PIM, IGMP, um, as well as any type of uh, web filtering services. So if we're offloading to uh, WebSense or um, N2H2, that type of capability, uh, again, that's a centralized feature. It can only be processed by the master. Uh, additionally, we have AAA, right? So AAA from the viewpoint of being able to authenticate and authorize connectivity to the devices themselves is a centralized feature. Uh, we also have some features that aren't supported at all in clustering. So if you rely on or require one of these features, then clustering today isn't an option for you. So those are some of the voice inspections, SIP, uh, H323, and Skinny, phone proxy or TLS proxy, which, again, you probably wouldn't be um, doing that on a data center firewall, right? Uh, botnet traffic filter, failover. Obviously, we can't have um, devices that are members of the cluster as well as participating in a failover pair. Um, I think that's about that's about it for the major features. Yeah, and if you go to configure clustering, so by default when you boot your 5585 or your 5500-X, it's going to have some that default policy inspection for SIP, Skinny, H323. Um, those inspections are enabled, but when you turn on the clustering feature, it'll say, you know, we're about to turn on clustering. You've got to choose which interface mode you go to, and we'll talk about that in a second. And then it'll say, we are going to manually disable these inspections. We are pulling them out because, again, they are not supported at this time. So um, it'll go into the parser and actually remove the config. So do be aware that um, those are you know, not supported with the clustering feature. You can't even have them turned on. And, you know, we, we go back and forth about distributed versus centralized features. And, you know, David's list there is, is pretty exhaustive about what we support centralized versus distributed. And 
If you're looking at implementing clustering and a majority of your traffic or your requirement falls under a centralized feature, for example, let's say, you know, in your cluster, your ASAs, they do a high amount of land-to-land -land VPN processing. And that's all that, yeah. That's and all that's all you do with those firewalls. Clustering is not really going to help you from a performance perspective because that is going firewall to be central. Firewall clustering. That's firewall right. clustering. That's VPN, right. you know, uh, remote access clustering is a different story. But if you're doing, like, land-to-land -land VPN or, uh, you, you know, you have a, a certain multicast requirement or certain filtering requirements that are centralized, you can add as many units as you want to the cluster, up to the limit. It's not going to necessarily help you for, the, for that traffic in particular. And here's why. If a slave unit receives a land-to-land -land packet that's destined to the ASA to be decrypted, the cluster, um, that slave unit will identify that that packet is for a centralized feature, and it'll actually forward that packet over the cluster control link, which we'll talk about, um, to the master unit. So it's actually just, it's not going to do much processing at all. It just forwards the packet to the master for the master to handle. So that's why we have that limitation. Yeah, and so for these centralized features, it's also important to know that um, the performance that you will get out of these centralized features will actually be a little bit less than if it was a standalone feature because you have the additional overhead of the cluster itself, right, and of the forwarding of packets around. So, again, if one of the main capabilities that you're using the firewall for is for something that's a centralized feature, then clustering probably isn't a good option for you. But distributed features are features that we consider to be cluster accelerated, meaning any unit in the cluster can um, process that packet independently and forward it on, which is, you know, what you want. So basic TCP and UDP connections, obviously, we can do that, but also some of our inspections. So, for example, FTP or HTTP or DNS inspections, um, you know, those are, uh, those are inspections that work in the cluster. Any unit can receive that control channel for an FTP session, for example. Maybe unit A receives the control channel and processes that connection. But then, as you know, with FTP, a data channel has to come up a separate... Um, TCP connection will come up to transfer the F FTP data. That packet could hit uh, cluster member C. So we've got to do some special stuff with the inspection, the FTP inspection, to um, have the uh, uh, unit A, when it processes that control channel, tell all the other cluster members, hey, you may be receiving an FTP data channel that will have the these specific security parameters. Go ahead and um, watch for that, and if you do see it come through, open that channel. So that shows you sort of the advanced... I don't know, changes in, in, in these inspections we had to do for clustering to get it to truly work. Right, so it's not as simple as you would think of just, you know, the feature exists on the individual unit and it just runs, right? There's yeah. a lot more complexity behind the scenes that uh, a lot of people don't think about, which is why for every single feature, uh, in order for them to be distributed, we really have to design and code them that way such they will be distributed. But we've, before we kind of go... Um, too much into the the details, right? So let, let's bring it back up to high level. So we've talked about benefits of using clustering, um, you know, to scale th performance and throughput, but I don't think we've talked about how much throughput is scaled at all, right? So, Jay, why don't you indicate, you know, if I've got a two-unit cluster versus a three-unit versus a four-unit cluster, what performance increase can I see? If, I, if for each unit I add, do I get 100% of the uh, performance of that standalone unit? Well, as you can imagine, um, any time that you've got... If you had three ASAs plugged in that weren't a part of a cluster and you forwarded, you know, three sets of traffic to those, y you could max out each box and 
multiply the data sheet numbers by three, right? But obviously they're not as part of a cluster. When you, anytime you have any computing resource that's now orchestrated and redundant, you're going to start to, um, there's going to be some loss in throughput over an individual node, right? So um, you can go to the lab and you can set up three ASA 5585s and you can pump, you know, a, a, a large amount of frames through those and you can, if as long as the traffic is balanced, Okay, and such that, and it's a low number of flows. You can get a, a huge amount of throughput through those. You can get near 100%, right? However, that's not very realistic, as we all know. Um, realistic with realistic traffic profiles, uh, you'll get about the scaling factor for multiple units in a cluster is about 70% of the combined throughput. Okay, so that means um, because of the connection replication for backup and redundancy, that if you took three 5585s the total throughput through the cluster realistically will be about 70% of what all of those individual units could achieve. Yep. So you take the total throughput for the boxes that you're using, whether they're 5585s or 5555s, right? And you multiply that times the number of units in the cluster, and then you multiply that times 0.7, and that'll get you the max throughput, the max expected throughput for the cluster. So that's throughput. Um, maximum connections... Uh, that's the total number of connections you can have active at the same time is about 60% scaling factor, okay? Um, and again, that scaling factor is the number of devices in the cluster times the maximum, in you know, uh, single connections, or, or I'm sorry, the maximum number of connections that a single box can have times this scaling factor that Jay's talking about, which is 0.6% for total concurrent connections. Yep, and... That's and, and, and that's because we replicate a lot of the connections to other members of the peers. That's right. So in order to have this redundancy that we've got automatically built into the clustering. Um, so that's why that scaling factor is a little bit lower. Yeah, and, and the last uh, the last one is connections per second, which scale at about a 50% rate. So connections per second obviously is very expensive. To build a connection, you, you know, you move the con through various states. There's a lot of messages that have to be exchanged back and forth between the the, the ASA, so that scales at about 50%. But you can think of this kind of like RAID on a disk. You know, you've got to get that redundancy, if you're running RAID 5 or whatever, you've got to have that extra disk for parity, or, you know, it doesn't scale completely linearly. So this is, this is expected, but um, we've done, you know, it just depends a lot on your traffic profile. You can uh, you can get much, you can get higher than these numbers uh, depending on how your traffic's balanced and how your traffic flows through your network. Likewise, you can um, have a very poorly designed network where uh, packets enter one firewall and then they always enter the, the return traffic always enters another firewall and you know if the through the latency between the ASAs is high. I mean you can really it can really hurt you there too. So it's really all about the traffic profile, how you design your cluster, and, and we'll get into some of that. So why don't we um, transition into how we configure a cluster? What's the easiest way of setting up a cluster from scratch? Yeah, there's two deployment modes, um, and you must choose one of these modes when you first configure clustering. There's two modes. Um, there's spanned ether channel mode, and there's individual interface mode. Okay. So those are the two ways. So, Magnus, walk us through what spanned ether channel mode is for the cluster. Spanned ether channel um, is probably the most straightforward configuration that you can do when it comes to clustering. Uh, first off, it's what we've seen most customers use in their environments. And it is a preferred method. It's, the, yeah. it's essentially the Cisco preferred method of doing clustering. And what happens is, again, let's talk about this fictitious cluster of eight ASAs. 
Um, and we have one of our interfaces, let's say it's uh, gig zero zero of those ASAs, uh, all connected to an adjacent switch. What spanned ether channel mode does is it allows that gig zero zero on each of those eight members of our cluster to be bundled together as a single ether channel. So if you're familiar with the concept of ether channels, you've got uh, individual links that are bundled into one large logical link. The same thing happens here in a spanned ether channel mode. The ASAs all look like one logical unit to the adjacent switch or switches, depending yeah. on what topology you're looking at. We do see a lot of people use uh, different uh, you know, switch layouts on the inside or outside, depending on how they want switch redundancy. VSS or VPC. Or... Exactly. Um, but the whole concept boils down to having all those eight or so, you know, it could be anywhere from two to eight, um, interfaces of your ASAs bundled as one logical port channel to the adjacent uh, switches. And we should, you know, be clear that this is the recommended approach. Uh, There is another method, which Magnus will talk about, but if you have a choice, right, this is the easier, more simplistic uh, approach, and this is what we would suggest or recommend, unless there's a specific reason that you can't do the spanned ether channel mode. Now, uh, we've been talking a lot about balance and connection flow, and in order to get, you know, the best performance you can, you want to have evenly distributed traffic. And in the sense of ether channel, what makes that distribution choice is whatever load balance protocol you're using on your ether channel link. So again, think of these ASAs as acting as just a switch, and you have two switches connected with an ether channel. Some packets will go over certain links based on a hashing of their source, destination, IP, port, whatever metric or algorithm you want to use on that ether channel. That's what decides what ASA receives what traffic over this spanned ether channel concept. It's really up to the adjacent switches to determine which firewall receives what traffic stream. And that's key, is that the ASA doesn't decide, the ASA cluster units don't decide or really even influence what packets they receive. It's all about the uh, switch sitting next to it in spanned ether channel mode that decides where to forward those packets. Is it going to forward this new TCP SYN packet to uh, unit A or unit B or unit C or unit D? That's based on this uh, ether channel hash. And from the perspective of the switch, it boils down to which link in this port channel am I going to send that packet down. The other mode is what we call individual interface mode. Now, as opposed to the spanned ether channel, each interface in your cluster. So again, let's talk about our eight fictitious ASAs and all of their gig zero zero interfaces will be essentially known as the inside. Each interface has its own IP address and each interface is discreetly connected to the adjacent switch. There's no concept of an ether channel here. It's just eight individual possible next hops from a routing perspective. And routing here is what makes the determination as to which ASA gets what packet. So uh, if we're talking again about this individual interface mode, we've got a router on the inside, your core router or some routed hop. And on that router you have, we're talking about eight ASAs, so eight possible next hop routes for a certain destination, be it default gateway or subnet or whatever. That internal router uses some form of uh, equal costs multi-path or equal cost load balancing for its router, routing uh, decisions. And that choice is what determines what firewall is going to receive that packet. If your inside router says, all right, I'm round robining these packets and I'm now going to send this to nexthop.1 and that's ASA unit A, it's going to go there. If it says dot two, that's ASA unit B, goes there, etc. It's essentially a, a routing choice that's made. And most customers, um, 
will do some sort of PBR on the adjacent device, or they'll run a routing protocol on the ASA cluster. Mm-hmm. Now, in individual interface mode, aka layer three mode, which Magnus is talking about, um, each cluster unit runs its own copy, basically, of the routing protocol you're running, be that OSPF, EIGRP. And then, so your adjacent router will see uh, eight ASAs all advertising the same route. So based on that, it will then uh, forward traffic based upon you know the equal cost routes that it's receiving from all eight ASAs, and then that's how the traffic gets to um, gets to those ASAs. Now we we went back and forth between layer two and layer three, and each one has its own, I guess you could say, redundancy characteristic. In layer two mode with spanned ether channel, if a unit in your cluster drops out of the cluster for any reason, a failure, a crash, a reload. Well, that's going to appear as a lost link in that Ether channel from the switch's perspective. So the switch will automatically start rebalancing what it's going to send to the remaining links that are available in that port channel. Back to talking about eight ASAs. We just lost one. Now the switch is going to load balance over seven ports in that port channel. And now those remaining units will receive the traffic. From a layer three individual interface mode, just as Jay mentioned, it's about that routing protocol concept. If the host disappears, if that one ASA disappears, well, we no longer have that next hop in our routing table in order to make an equal cost path decision. And that's one of the reasons why spanned ether channel mode is preferred. Because think about how fast it is. If, if uh, you walked up to one of the ASA unit A in the cluster and you pulled the cable out of its outside interface, well, the ASA is going to notice that the interface went down the first thing it's going to do is shut down its um, inside interface as well because we want uh, the ether channel on the inside to immediately pull that port out of the link so we don't start receiving traffic for that ASA. And then the ASA is going to pull itself out of the cluster. Um, but that all happens as fast as LACP on the adjacent switches is going to detect the failure and rebalance the traffic. That's very fast. It can be very fast. Um, individual interface mode, you're, you've got to rely on routing protocols um, convergence times, and that can be slower. So that that is another reason why a unit failure is much more quickly detected and the impact on the network is much less in spanned ether channel mode. Um, so there's one very important uh, point we haven't talked about yet, and that's the cluster control link. So uh, these devices have got to communicate somehow, and um, all these different uh, ASAs need to be able to talk to each other. So Magnus, talk to us about what this new cluster control link thing does. I think the easiest way to think about the cluster control link is to extrapolate it back to the legacy failover concept. In failover we have your, you know, failover state and failover control interfaces where we exchange uh, you know, stateful information, we also exchange configuration information. It, the cluster control link is somewhat like a failover link but uh, beefier on steroids and multi-point and multi-point so back in the world of failover you've got only two units so you could do such things as just connect a cable between you know your two failover units your standby and your active and everything's fine but when we start looking at the cluster control link you could have up to eight units what the cluster control link is used for it's essentially a subnet that all a subnet or a vlan or some layer two existence where all the asas that are in your cluster have access to. It's uh, like a multi-point failover link. And what that cluster control link is used to do is, for example, exchange configuration information, exchange uh, information about the health of each unit, join in and out of the cluster, uh, basically cluster management 
type communication. The other key thing that the cluster control link is used for is stateful replication of connections. So if you think about in failover, you have your state link. That same concept is used on the cluster control link. We'll get into details a little bit later about what kind of stateful replication happens because it's a lot more complex than what we had with failover, but uh, it's similar still. And the last key thing is if we've been talking about how we've got multiple units in a cluster, if I'm the one that's processing, if I'm a, a, a unit in a cluster and I've uh, started processing a connection, uh, but then Jay, you are another unit in the cluster and you've received a packet that's supposed to be part of my connection, you're going to be sending that over to me to process. That communication to send data back and forth that may need to get rebalanced in the cluster is also done over this cluster control link. So it's really three key features and functions that happen on that cluster control link. And it's worth noting that the cluster control link is critical, right? It's it's really the most critical part about the cluster because, as you mentioned, all the con command and control information to keep the cluster members in sync is sent across it, as well as data packets are sent across it. And so it's critical that it be... Um, alive all the time, but it's mm -hmm. also critical that the um, latency across that link also be minimized as well. It's like the spine of your cluster. Yes, yes. The cluster spine interface. Um, yeah, and so for that reason, you know, you're listening to this podcast, you're thinking about, well, what are, you know, some tips for how I can deploy this? And I think here, here's some of the most important stuff you'll get out of this podcast. Um, if possible, if you're using the 5585, we want you to use 10, gigabyte, 10 gigabit interfaces for that CCL. You know, go ahead and use the biggest interfaces you can because you don't know how your network's going to scale up in the future and you may be adding more units in the future. Um, and if possible, use an ether channel for your cluster control link on each individual ASA. So each ASA for redundancy can have two interfaces that make up an ether channel to a switch that's used for a cluster control link. Um, you also want to enable port fast on the switch ports that are used for that uh, CCL, cluster control link, so they come up quickly, so the units can see each other if there's a reboot or a, a reload, and um, they can decide who's going to be the master. Um, also, because, like Magnus said, if, if a, a unit A needs to forward a packet over to unit B over the cluster control link, um, he needs to add a little header on to that packet when he puts it on the CCL VLAN. And uh, for that, you know, the MTU could be greater than 1500, so the MTU on those interfaces and on the switch needs to be... Um, 16k and also you need to turn on jumbo jumbo frames on the ESA as well so those are some considerations about um, about the CCL what are some other uh, you know top of mind things people need to take into account when they're deploying uh, initially designing or deploying this I think you know we if we boil it down to most people are going to use spanned ether channel as their mode uh, one of the key things to a successful cluster deployment is symmetric traffic you know, a lot of people are looking at this from a performance perspective. I want to get the most throughput that I can out of my cluster. The biggest thing that'll stymie your throughput is asymmetric traffic. And what we mean by that from a spanned ether channel perspective, uh, let's simplify our fictitious idea to there's only two firewalls. I have firewall unit A and firewall unit B. If all the traffic from one subnet to another subnet gets ether channel hashed by the switch that's on the inside to go to unit A, but all the traffic that would return on that gets ether channel hashed to go to unit B, 
Well, now we have the situation where we have one direction of the traffic goes through unit A, the return traffic hits unit B and then has to be forwarded over that cluster control link that Jay mentioned back over to unit A for processing. So one of the best things you can do from a spanned ether channel perspective is make sure that you're using, for example, similar line cards or hardware on either side of your cluster. That'll help ensure that you uh, are going to end up with the same traffic arriving at the same ASA as it left. And it goes without saying, but the same load balancing exactly. algorithm. I mean, you know, you, you don't want to have source desk IP on the inside, source desk IP and port on the outside. That's you right. know, you're going to have essentially a, a misbalance of traffic, and that really will hurt your performance. But it, you know, the cluster's made to handle that. Anytime you're going to do NAT, for instance, on well, the ASA, then you're going to get it. Um, an unbalanced traffic flow or an asymmetric traffic flow, but the clusters, that's normal and that's expected in most cases. So don't be afraid if that's the case because the cluster is ready to handle that and it's going to forward the traffic, but your performance will take a, a small hit, yep. obviously. Yep. So if we're looking at a checklist, so customers are listening like, okay, I want to implement clustering. If we think about a checklist, let's kind of go through a list of what you need to have ready. Step one, you get a piece of paper and a pen. So let's have a list, a checklist, if you would. If customers are listening to this, they want to enable clustering. The first thing is they need two or more units that are identical in hardware to be able to do clustering. Okay, They need to have uh, switches on both inside and outside, and they need to determine and look ahead to see if we're doing spanned ether channel that the load balancing algorithm is the same on both the inside and outside. Version is critical on both the switches and on the ASA. So we would highly recommend 914 later uh, on the ASAs. Yep. Um, and on the switches, I think we've got a guide that, that lets them know what switches are supported as well as the version that's supported. Yeah, the configuration guide for ASA 91 is the go-to place. Uh, if you go under the high availability and scalability section and click on clustering, um, table 8.2 says, you know, we it says we support the Nexus 7000 running NX OS 5.25 and later uh, the 6500 Catalyst 6500 and the Catalyst 3750-X. So you may be asking yourself, why are we so specific with these these switch versions and these switch models? And it really comes down to in our testing with clustering and, and switch interoperability. Um, because there's so many little things about the timing of the cluster LACP and the interaction between the switch and the ASA, um, we found obviously some bugs with uh, not just on the ASA but on the switch side. Little corner cases you might hit when using clustering. And so uh, we've worked out all the bugs we know about, all those bugs with those supported hardware. So that's why we strongly, strongly recommend you use one of those supported hardware version, hardware and software, because that'll minimize your risk there, absolutely. And, and those are also getting updated with time as well. Yeah. So y you might look after hearing this episode and you might see the Nexus 5000 um, on there, right? Because that's also being tested now. Yeah, we're doing a lot of rapid testing. Uh, at the time of this episode airing, though, yeah, it, it's just three different. But in the future, it's going to grow. That Don't be scared by that. That number of supported switches is going to increase a lot. Okay. And then so the next thing is also the cluster control link, or as Magnus said, the spine of the cluster, making sure that that, that spine is using the fastest interface on the device um, so that it can send the command and control information. And for those that want to use uh, units in separate geographically disperse data centers that is supported along, as long as the latency on that CCO or cluster control link is 10 milliseconds or lower. Yeah, the 20 millisecond round trip time, you have yeah. to have less than that, and also you have to be running spanned ether channel mode, and you have to be running ASA version 914. Um, and obviously we're working to you know, increase uh, the supported 
um, deployments, but that's that's what we have so far. So that's sort of a special case, and there's a section in the config guide about best practices around that. So with all that said, customers are willing to you know, want to spin this up. What's the easiest way of allowing them to configure it? Right. So ASDM supports cluster configuration, but there is a bootstrap required for each of the cluster members, but once you do the bootstrap step, um, then you can centrally manage the cluster from the master unit. So I think ASDM provides a nice little yep. wizard to allow you to configure it. Um, alternatively, the CLI, they, they can configure it via the CLI, but wouldn't you all recommend ASDM for enabling the cluster capability? Yeah. I think it gives you the, the easiest from start to finish of just getting up and running. Um, I've always been a command line guy, so but I have used ASDM in the past to set up clustering just because it's a, you know it's intuitive. Yeah. So. To have a successful clustering deployment, and, and what we've seen with customers, this rings true, um, is do spend some time understanding your network, understanding the requirements, and making sure that you have these boxes ticked. If you go through the proper deployment uh, preparation, it's going to be smooth. We've got lots of customers running um, clusters with lots of ASAs, passing a lot of traffic, and they don't have any trouble. So, And I think preparation helps with that. And, and on the topic of preparation, the, the last thing I would add, and this is something that actually kind of came up in the voice podcast that we did just recently, was you know if you are your network's firewall administrator and you have a guy that handles the switches and you have a guy that handles the routing, you know, you might want to all sit down, go out for lunch, and talk about how you want to implement this because it is very critical that the adjacent devices are set up in a fashion that is best suited for clustering. So if it involves a few minutes on a lunch break to just hash out some ideas, it'll benefit you in the long run as opposed to trying to call in a switching guy or, you know, whoever manages the adjacent devices when you're in the thick of it in the middle of configuring <laughs> In the middle it. of the maintenance window. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, thanks a lot for listening to this episode. Uh, the next episode we're going to release is going to be all about um, the data path of clustering and actually how more details about how we forward packets around and you know what do we do if one of the units fails? What do you do if you power off one unit? Um, how do you do maintenance? How do you do reporting? And then also troubleshooting, right? Uh, packet capture, show commands. Uh, how do you figure out what your cluster is doing and how it's performing? That's what we'll talk about in our next episode. So uh, until then, thanks a lot for listening.